0: This podcast is produced by the Center for Deployment Psychology at the Uniform Services University of the Health Sciences. The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the Uniform Services University, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. Government. In addition, references to any specific companies, products, processes, or services does not necessarily constitute or imply endorsement by the Uniform Services University, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. Government. Welcome to CDP's podcast, Practical for Your Practice
1: we give you actionable intel to support what you do. One colleague to another. Hello, welcome to Practical for Your Practice. I'm Andy Santanello, Senior Military Behavioral Health Psychologist at the Center for Deployment Psychology. And today we've got both Jenna and Kevin with us. Hey, guys. Hey, Andy. How are you? Doing well. How are you? Great. Glad to be here. And uh, I'm excited to have uh, a new friend of mine and colleague, Amanda Rhodes. Hey, Amanda. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. So can you tell us uh, just a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. So I am a
2: clinical health psychologist. I'm down in Washington, D.C., so I'm a little south of you guys. Um, And my day job is I'm a research psychologist at the National Institutes of Health. Um, Specifically, I'm at the National Cancer Institute. So during the day, I I, I do research on the, you know, kind of the effects of disease and treatment um, in your cancer populations, your cancer predisposition populations like neurofibromatosis and then also some other you know chronic illness populations my specialty is pain so sickle cell disease and things like that Um, so that's what I do during the day you know it's a small aspect of my identity I also am a clinical assistant professor at GW in DC and then I own and operate a, a small private practice out of Bethesda where I see you know, patients with chronic medical conditions clinically. Um, so during the day, I kind of am doing research with them, but then at night, I get to kind of apply what I learn in a clinical setting, which has been very fruitful for me. A true scientist practitioner. That's fantastic. yes, yes, very much.
1: Well, and the, the the way that you and I got acquainted was actually um, I started working with a client of mine who who is immunocompromised. And, yeah. uh, I was feeling a little bit stuck. Yeah. So, uh, I, I, I decided to practice what I preach and I reached out for some consultation and, uh, you were kind enough to answer my email. And so you and I've been talking a little bit specifically about your work with folks who are immunocompromised and you've been very kind to give me some practical advice on how I might work more effectively with this particular client. So, um, Maybe that's a place to start because we were, you know, in our last discussion, when we were talking about this podcast, one of the things that you and I were talking about is that you honestly knowledge about what it means to be immunocompromised um, and how to work effectively with folks and how that work might look a little bit different um, is not something that maybe most clinicians, unless they're, you know, in the field of health psychology or specialized in that area know about. So maybe a place to start is just a basic definition idea of what it means to be immunocompromised.
2: Yeah. And what you said there was so brilliant in that we kind of got together because you were feeling stuck and with our immunocompromised patients, We have to understand it in the context of COVID. They're stuck too, right? So it's a parallel process that's happening. And so when we're feeling stuck as clinicians, it's very much paralleling and mirroring what they're dealing with in their everyday life. Um, And I think with that specific case, I think that was very much coming up. And when we talk about immunocompromised clients or people, basically what's happening is that when we are exposed to a virus, we have an immune system that kind of goes and attacks it. It says, Danger, oh my gosh, go and attack it and attack it. With our immunocompromised patients, um, they often have conditions in which their immune system. Either doesn't recognize that something is in the body that's foreign, or they they don't have enough antibodies to actually attack it in in a good way, in, in a meaningful way. And so, when something like uh, coronavirus comes around, it's, it can be very scary, right? Because they're they're very at risk. Um, so you know, when we talk about immunocompromised patients, a lot of times they're kind of this with chronic pain, and then we add COVID into it and it gets to be a really serious, scary situation because, um, you know, the immune system itself plays a very significant role in how we experience pain and pain conditions through, you know, kind of the release of cytokines, autokines, um, other inflammatory mediators and, a lot of times with pain and immune conditions that hypersensitive comes into play um, because there is this lack of increasing kind of pro-inflammatory cytokines in the blood. And that can be very, very scary and painful, right? So you you think about your rheumatoid arthritis populations, your osteoarthritis populations, MS, right? Um, Fibromyalgia, diabetic neuropathy. These are all kind of autoimmune, immune deficiency conditions that also experience a lot of pain in the context of the last two years have been very scary for these people, um, rightfully so. And so how do we live fruitfully and meaningfully um, when we're dealing with some serious stuff and some serious dangers at play?
0: It occurs to me that it's it, it, there's, there's that distress or that worry about their own health and the fact that there is this really dangerous, deadly virus out there yeah. in the environment that they you know, maybe are less equipped to fight off. And and on top of that, the complexities of um, just kind of how maybe we as a society in general has responded to that and, uh, you know, kind of the yes. importance of taking care of each other, the importance of protecting each other or not. And, and I imagine that also kind of makes it makes it more complex or amplifies some of those.
2: Absolutely. And our traditional strategies embedded within our medical model, like treatments, actually can also put them more at risk. Like, you know, your traditional opiates, right, especially morphine and fentanyl, they actually put you more at risk for something like coronavirus Mm -hmm. So, or or steroids, right? Like think about how many steroid treatments our patients get. Um, That's been their traditional kind of move forward with their treatments. And all of a sudden their safety nets of treatments are now extra scary because they're making them are higher at risk. So their whole worlds are getting totally shaken up. Um, and I think we're feeling it as clinicians.
1: Uh. I want to go back a second to just some of the things that you said kind of in passing when talking about some of the specific conditions that kind of fall under that umbrella of, um, you know, have at least an element to being immunocompromised. You mentioned things like rheumatoid arthritis. And Mm -hmm. even right there, maybe that's not something that most people would think about as being a condition that's related to a suppressed immune system. You know, things that come to mind easily might be HIV, you know, AIDS, that type of thing, but there's lots of other conditions. Could you say a little bit more about that? What are some of the other maybe you know, conditions presenting issues that you may not think are actually suppressing the immune system, but, but really are more common than we would think.
2: Yeah. So, you know, something like rheumatoid arthritis is, is one that, you know, tends to be a single diagnosis, right. Or fibromyalgia. Um, That's another one. That's a, that affects the immune system. Um, Diabetic neuropathy, Affects the immune system. So we have these over, like you said, HIV um, or GATA2 or CDH1 gene mutations. And then we have ones like RA or osteoarthritis, um, which come with a diagnosis of, oh, like this is like something to do with my bones pretty much. And we don't really have enough psychoeducation around, oh my gosh, but it's actually affecting your immune system and your body's ability to fight off viruses and diseases. Um, so those are a couple of examples. Yeah.
3: I don't think there are things we tend to ask about as clinicians Mm -mm. either, or, you know, assess for, um, not assess for in a medical way, but assess for in a, you know, let me really understand all the health factors that might be impacting what's going on for you. You know, there's not, on your intake form, it doesn't say, do you have rheumatoid arthritis or or some of these other conditions? Um, You know, I'm curious, and I I don't want to get into actionable intel, but, you know, how do you... How do you help people maybe improve that biopsychosocial assessment with this piece?
2: So you know it's it's really tricky as both humans and clinicians to work with these patients because there's actual serious risk, right? And so we are creating a sense of flexibility to context um, that we're hoping that they can do in their day to day life, um, because we want to inc- kind of increase their lives, but we also need to be really sensitive to. Health risks, right? So, in any given moment, can they flip flexibly shift context in and assess the risk that they'd be willing to take or have to take? And that's really, really hard, right? So, mm-hmm. we're kind of carrying this like kind of dichotomized dialectic um, experience of this. We want to broaden your life, and also we need to be really con- sensitive to context. Um, and can we move? flexibly and in small increments in any given situation, right? Because the kind of the black and white, I'm going to do this. I'm not going to do this. is not going to serve us well. Um, and what we've seen over the course of the past two years, especially with our immunocompromised patients is life has gone like this, it's like stay in your house and don't get sick. And we already know, right. That, you know, people with chronic pain, people with health conditions, they're more prone to loneliness and depression and isolation anyways. That impacts global. their experience of pain, right? Yeah, absolutely. The cyclical relationships. So they're all prone to this. So now we're saying, hey, stay inside. Oh my gosh, right. So how do we work with that? And we can certainly talk about clinically um, how we work with that.
1: And, and even the, you know, the changing recommendations for the general public about how to be safe when it comes to COVID, to minimize risk, you know, get vaccinated, get boosted you know, um, social distancing, wear a mask, you know, depending on the numbers, we might get different recommendations. It's okay to take your mask off now. Um, If you've been vaccinated, it's okay to be around people. It's my understanding that that actually those recommendations may really not apply to some folks who are immunocompromised. Even if they have done all those things, they still might be at increased risk.
2: Yes, absolutely. And so, you know, one of the ways that we typically live our lives is through rules. Right. And so when somebody creates a rule for us, like, well, I'll just follow that rule. And sometimes that's not workable. Right. And so how do we build up the skill to understand the context of the rules that they were provided and what is actually their experience? Right. Like I know, you know, for the past few years, and I think this is over now, but in the UK, you know, they had, um, they had, you know, a quarantine period. But if you had an immunocompromised condition or a chronic pain condition, it was like three months. It was like really, really long, right? And that's a really long time to stay inside. Um, And so, you know, how can we create a sensitivity to rules, but also a flexibility for rules? Um, Because that's what gets us into kind of tricky spaces um, because they're constantly changing, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm.
3: I imagine also just that working with clients who are constantly being questioned by those yeah. who are less informed, um, others reactions to them trying to keep themselves safe. Um, I mean, I think we, we even have it in with, with, unfortunately, with medical providers and, um, there's frustration, you know, these people are already frustrated with some of the stuff that goes on medically for them and interactions that they have. And then they're also having to explain to friends and families, um, you know, why, why they have certain rules and, and some of the, you know, not really stigma but but extra stress just involved in having to manage that with people in
2: their lives. Absolutely. And what a great, what a great metaphor, right? That we can use for these patients. Um because what's happening is this is an opportunity for us to see how we respond when either people on the outside um react to our rules in a way that's parallel to what we want them to do or not. Right. And so that's like a really good example of how it feels internally of like when other people are kind of um, following rules or not. And this is what they do in their own lives. Like the people create own rules about how they function, about how their health functions, about how their pain functions. And then when they break them or they stick with them, what happens? Right. And so the, the aspect of other people's behavior really comes into play and brings up a lot of stuff for us. Um, so it's a really good way to kind of externally play with, Hey, what's coming up for you. Um, as this is kind of going on, as a mirror of how they interact with their own illness um, and a lot of times their own pain. Um, yeah. We're, it, it's been a really interesting trial period for, for these individuals um, because we've put them kind of, you know, in a situation that we haven't dealt with as a public right a lot of people are not well versed in what it means to a have a chronic illness or be like have an immunocompromised illness that is directly impacted by something like a global pandemic with a virus like a sars virus um and and i think you know in the in the long term might be good, right? Because we have started this conversation like, hey, like we gotta, we have to change our behavior in some manners um, because so far we've neglected these people's needs, um, I think, as a system. Uh, so now we can't, right? Anymore. This is a conversation that even we're having on this podcast, right. right? It's like, in a way, it's really cool.
1: And I think it is great that we're talking about it. And you're right, this has created that opportunity. And I'm yeah. so glad that you use such strong language. We certainly have neglected. Yeah, and mostly out of just ignorance yeah. you know, which which has been you know and it's always good to be aware of your blind spots one of the, one of the things that you know I was sort of thinking about as you were talking just a few moments ago um when it comes to folks who have lived with you know um, immunological conditions they've had to live their lives all along in a, in a different way than may, maybe most people have and that sense of being different being sort of set apart from society You know, I'm thinking that maybe, you know, COVID as things are opening up for almost everyone else who doesn't have one of these conditions that may exacerbate that sense of aloneness, separateness being left behind. Is that something that you've been sort of noticing or seeing in your clients?
2: Absolutely. I mean, we we do see this in our immunocompromised chronic illness, cancer, chronic pain patients already, right? The research shows are more prone to kind of social isolation and and loneliness. Um, And this has exacerbated it because of the risks of leaving your going outside your door. Right. And so I certainly see it. And then also we're like, we moved everything to telehealth for, for instance. Um, another thing that I've seen is that, you know, a lot of the appointments, these people get really multidisciplinary appointments. A lot of them seem chiropractors and PTs and OTs, uh, or even just pain management. And a lot of that kind of stopped, uh, during this time or went to telehealth as much as possible. And so there's just less interaction. Um, and I, I think, That has been an issue for a lot of people, and so how can we create a sense of connection over telehealth? That's at least what I've seen, you know, this past year. Is it certainly can be done. It it might feel different, and we might have expectations about how that feels. And can we work with those expectations and still get into our lives as much as possible? Right. Um, If it can't be a face to face visit, how does it feel to do FaceTime? Right. And can we work with the feelings that come up? like the expectation that didn't get met or what it feels like to have the technology fail us um can we have those signals come up and have those thoughts of like oh this totally stinks and this this is my life now and work with that in the service of hey at least i'm getting to talk to somebody that i care deeply about um you know it's a a real sense of reevaluating what it means to get connection um, because like, again, we, we've talked about expectations, I think for the last 20 minutes, because um, in a way um, we can't meet those. So can we re- reevaluate and revise?
0: You know, kind of along the lines of maybe some of the opportunities that have come with, you know, the the pandemic. And, and I don't mean to try to make it sound like you know, pandemic's a great thing, but it, it occurs to me with with regards to like OCD clients that I've encountered in the past, that there's almost like, the pandemic has provided an opportunity for other people to step into their shoes, right? Kind of this, yeah. you know, this, this, having to wash our hands all the time and keep distance from people and, you know, be aware of potential contaminants. It's almost like, look, you all finally get now what my life is like. And, and I, I almost kind of felt like as you were describing some of this, right. Some of these challenges that maybe most of the world didn't think about you know but now we all have to confront too i wonder if there's for at least some folks that are immunocompromised this feeling of like okay so you kindly you kind of get it now like a little bit of what i have to deal with on a day-to-day basis
2: kevin i think you said it beautifully and and the word that's coming up for me as you were talking was uncertainty right so we're all living with uncertainty but you know a lot of it wasn't in our face with our immunocompromised patients or our chronic pain patients or our cancer patients, chronic illness, they are living with uncertainty in a moment to moment way, always in their face. And in something like a global pandemic, as a society, as a a human race, we have been smacked in the face with uncertainty. And, And so we are now all living and trying as best we can, to navigate uncertainty. And I got to say, it's not going away, right? Just because this pandemic seems to be going away. And I don't know if can will be able to see my quote seems to be going away. Life is uncertain, right? Life provides us so much, so much uncertainty. So for a second, we're stepping into the shoes really of these patients in a way that maybe we can find some common humanity of, wow, life is really, really scary. That's what it is. Life is scary.
0: And really have that empathy for that experience. Yeah.
1: And along those lines, that calculation of risk, you know, having having to make a choice between being around people you care about and potentially contracting,, yep. you know, a disease that could kill you and that you could spread to other people and harm or kill them. you know that that's the kind of decision making that I think unfortunately a lot of immunocompromised folks are used to doing. And now it's even more exacerbated. You know, yeah. and for I think a lot of folks, especially the the folks that I've been working with, it, it, that that decision gets harder and harder to make because the more you decide to choose health and safety and keeping yourself uh, safe from risk of getting COVID, that entails the more you're choosing not to maybe do things that are going to be good for you psychologically. That's a really really hard. Um, balance find, And so this is a tough question. I, I don't expect that you will have like the answer for it, but how, how might we help folks who are, you know, like making those impossible decisions almost on a daily mm-hmm. basis?
2: And I loved how you phrased that, right? Cause how can I help somebody in the process of making decisions, because I cannot help you make that decision. I can make, not make that decision for you. And, and I hope nobody does, right? Because that's not going to be helpful for you in the long term. But what we can do is we, we can work with what comes up when decisions are being made. Right. So, what thoughts come up? Um, what feelings come up? What sensations come up? And which one of those are connected to values in that given moment? Um, and which ones are connected to a, a greater sense of just fear and avoidance? Right. So, can we work with somebody in how they show up to decision making? Um, because I would love to be able to give you a rule, and I guarantee that same situation is probably not going to come up again. Right. So, I have, I basically have to work with you in how you show up in a flexible manner in terms of how how. how many options are on the table in your behavioral repertoire that you can access in any given time when you are directly trying to kind of move towards something that's meaningful. Um, And yet, having all of the context on the table, right? Because we we tend to narrow in and I, I know you probably see it a lot with the population you guys work with, but like danger shows up really, really, really fast and hard and, and big and, and flashing lights. And there are also other things in the context. Um, so some of the strategies I work with certainly are mindfulness, right? Because can we really see, I know this is like a flashing danger light for me, what's on the other side of that light? What's on the, what's on to the left, to the right, to the bottom? Are there other things in the context that we also need to pay attention to that are a little bit harder only because danger is coming in really, really fast and strong. Um, so I, I certainly, you know, in terms of practical solutions work with mindfulness a lot, um, with these patients. And speaking
3: of practical, I think, um, you know, I, I, and I and I really loved how you put that. And I was actually just thinking we have to figure out how to weave that into the title, um, you know, because working we're, we're working with clients to figure out how to show up in the decision making process and and not making decisions, I think, is a is great piece of practical. Um, you know, we're going to talk about actionable intel. We like to leave our listeners with how can I take something from this discussion and integrate it into my practice to somehow improve it or support me or or Mm -hmm. augment what I'm already doing. Um, And so I'm wondering if you had some thoughts, if you, you know, kind of had the ear of some folks listening who are out there working with um, patients who have, you know, some sort of, are immune compromised. Are there some practical tips and strategies, um, things to do things not to do that you think you would love to offer?
2: I think the first thing that comes to my mind is, you know, reevaluating what we mean by smart goals and committed actions. Um, because in the context of what we're doing now, this is going to look, this looks very different than what we did, you know, five years ago or five years into the future. And so are there ways that we can harness somebody's values in a way that they could do it in their room if they need to be in the room, right? Like if they need to be via telehealth. And so can we help kind of reformulate um behavioral actions that do get us towards the things that are meaningful in life while working with uh, disappointment when it shows up in the room? Um, And and can we have experiences like that and still engage in behavioral actions that get us towards the things that we care about? Um, it, It can certainly be done if we have a really good workability with sadness disappointments fear scared um things like that and, and certainly you know i think a lot of our your listeners probably are using telehealth um and so that's like a great platform i think i use it all the time as like a metaphor right so it's like when things go wrong it's like modeling the psychological flexibility of like yeah things are going wrong and you know modeling i'm this is uncertain for me too not in the way that's uncertain for you but i'm scared as a human right this, we're in this kind of together um you know bringing in i think the last thing i'm thinking about is bringing in metaphors that are going to really relate to their lives right like can we use wearing a mask as a metaphor for what they do to to hide their identity in terms of their idealness illness you know you know using metaphors that are going to really relate to Their lives are really, really important. Um, Can we use metaphors of technology? Can we use metaphors when things go wrong? Can we use metaphors of staying inside the room? You know, these are things that we have that we can grasp that certainly will work when we're doing something like telehealth.
1: I'm going to add one more little piece of actionable intel. Yeah. I love that. Um, Make friends with people like Amanda Rhodes. You know, so if you are, (laughs) yeah, I mean, seriously, if we talk about consultation a lot on this podcast, but I think definitely there's, Um, so many really talented and knowledgeable people out there, especially in this, in this field. Um, and so cold calling, cold emailing somebody and chatting with them, especially if this is not an area of practice that you're familiar with and, you know, telehealth works, um, and video conferencing works for us too. You know, it's great to be able to, in some ways, maybe more than ever be able to have a video conference with somebody, um, who's across the country even. And do some mm-hmm. consultation. So yeah, yeah, reach out. Don't don't feel like you got to do this by yourself.
3: I think that's so similar to what, even what we do in some of our prolonged exposure mm-hmm. consultation. Is when, when we need to be creative, it's really helpful to do that together. You know, if, we, if there's something we need to think around and come up with different solutions and um, you know behavioral repertoires. If if somebody's stuck at home, it, it seems like being able to do that with another person, like Annie, you were so smart to do with Amanda makes a ton of sense because we, we think we're being as creative as we can, but when you get a few brains together, it really does help to identify lots of those different options.
2: And just, and, you know, showing up together to this, right. it's like, I don't have all the answers. Andy doesn't know all the answers, but sometimes like when we, when we meet, it's like, we're just, we're sitting in the uncertainty together and let's see where that process takes us. Um, and there's beauty and, and flexibility and growth in that process. And I guarantee there are other clinicians who are stuck <laughs> right? And so what, what's the beauty that happens when we're stuck side by side? And that can be over telehealth.
1: Certainly. Going back to out that theme inside of- the uncertainty.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes,
1: exactly.
0: I, was I was say, Catching care. back on that theme of, of connection again, you know, kind of reaching out for the important connection.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Amanda, for being willing to come on our podcast. Um, I think this is so um, such an important topic and one that, you know, I'm ashamed to say recent, until very recently, I don't think I was aware of. Um, and thank you so much for the work you're doing at NIH and with your clients.
2: Of course. Thank you so much for having me. I'll, I'll be back anytime you need.
1: Oh, you heard her We're saying, guys. Hold
2: you
1: to that <laughs> I, I'll, I'll be here. Tune in next week. <laughs> <laughs> you got it. You got it. Whatever. It <laughs> All right, everybody. Thanks for joining us for Practical for Your Practice. And we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye, everyone.
3: Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening to Practical for Your Practice.
0: Please feel free to subscribe, rate, and join in on the conversation in the comments.
1: Until next time.